is my right A right given by God To live a free life To live in freedom Talking about going to continue to uh, um, enter into our series here in Galatians chapter 5. Today we are in verses 16 through 20, and I want to introduce um, this text by saying this. Um, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. You've heard this before, right? Maybe you've heard statements like that. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. The difference is a religion will use fear as a motivator in order to manipulate people to good behavior. So a religion says, do this, stop doing this, beat your flesh, don't eat this, don't drink caffeine. And we use this fear in order to manipulate or control people towards good behavior. A relationship, on the other hand, Christianity, as we would call it a relationship, is about a relationship with Christ. It's not a religion. It doesn't use fear as a motivator for good, well, at least not gospel-centered, Christ-centered Christianity, right? We've, as we've covered in this series, there are many Christians today who still use the law and who use fear as a motivator for good behavior. But the ironic thing is, is that it doesn't change. It does not change us. You might be able to externally change some things, but deep down inside, religion never changes you. But a relationship will always change you. Even a human relationship. How many of you are married? You're changed, aren't you? You've been changed. That's the purpose of marriage, to change you. And a relationship with the God of the universe, do you think will change you? If you're in a relationship with the God of the universe, you're going to change. So the difference between a religion is fear to motivate you to good behavior. Relationship, well, that's just going to change you. So Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And it's a relationship about Christ, right? That's why it's called Christianity, not Johnnyanity or whatever, you know? It's not about you. Christianity is not about you and what you need to do. It's about what he done did. Amen? Someone say amen. All right, so today we're going to continue to look into Galatians 5 about freedom. And let me tell you what you get in this relationship. Jesus says, I want to have a relationship with you. And what he doesn't say is, but in order for me to have a relationship with you, you've got to clean this up. And you've got to start acting this way, and you've got to stop listening to country music, and you've got to only listen to Christian music. Jesus doesn't say that, does he? Here's what Jesus offers you in this relationship, freedom. We learned last time in Galatians 5, verse 1, that it is for freedom that Christ has given you freedom. So freedom is the beginning and the end of your relationship with Christ. The beginning. It is for freedom that Christ has given you the end. Freedom. It's all about freedom. Jesus wants you to be free, which is why he said, if the Son has set you free, the beginning, then you are free indeed, the end. It's all about freedom. Jesus wants you to be free. And as we enter into chapter 5, and I'm going to be honest with you, some of you have read ahead. I know you've read the Bible. You know that chapter 5 is going to start sounding a little different than chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. All this talk about freedom and the law being separated. 
What are we going to do when we get to the fruit of the Spirit and stuff like that? Well, I want you to know that before we move forward, we have to continue to stand firm, as Paul says in Galatians 5.1, on this grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone gospel. We have to stand firm on freedom before we move into this battle between our flesh and our spirit, or our flesh and the spirit, I should say. So before we move on, let me just recap where we've been. It's all about freedom, and Paul has taken 4.5 chapters to tell us that we've been set free from primarily two things, from sin and the law. So, And these things are essentially the same thing. Um, Sin is your desire to live outside of God, and the law is your desire also to live outside of God by getting the promises of God in your own works. Just like Abraham reverse-engineered the promise of God and got Ishmael, Paul tells us, Sin and works of the law are the same thing. And Paul says they're all works of the flesh, okay? So Paul's been telling us that Jesus has set us free from those things. And then when we entered into chapter 5, we learned that he doesn't just set us free from something. He also sets us free to something. We, for 10 whole weeks, we were talking about freedom. And some of you were saying, but then what's all this freedom for? What do I do with this freedom if I can't go party What's the purpose of freedom? Well, Jesus sets us free to two things as well, and those things are righteousness and love. Beginning of chapter 5, Paul says we've been given the Spirit so that we can hope eagerly for the righteousness, for the hope of righteousness. So he's going to give us righteousness, which is the opposite of sin. But we also have been set free to love, because only a free person can love. A sinful person is selfish, and he can't love. And a legalistic person is selfish. He can't love. Only a free person can love. And so all of this happens from the Spirit. And what we're going to see as we finish Galatians 5, we're going to see that there are acts of the flesh, but the contrast is not acts of the Spirit, not works of the Spirit, but what is it? Fruit. Yeah. So there's acts of the flesh, sin, and legal obedience to the law. Those are all acts of the flesh. And Paul's going to give us a list of bad things that happen when you act out in your flesh. And then in contrast, there's fruit from the Spirit that you'll receive. So are you ready to move forward? I know you are. Before we get to that list, which we'll cover next week, the list of bad, evil things that happen in your flesh and the list of good, fruitful things that happen in the Spirit. Before we get to that list next week, we have to talk about this inner battle. The battle of the flesh and the Spirit is happening inside of you. And you know this already. You didn't even need the Bible to know this, but we do have the Bible, so let me read what it says. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul's just described your life, hasn't he? Someone give me an amen or a what, what, or a nod, a good nod. If Paul has just described your life, he did to a T. Don't you know you have this battle raging inside of you? The battle between the desires of your flesh and the desire of the Spirit. Isn't it true? And they're raging against each other, so you have these motives. You want to be pure. You want to be um, selfless, but yet you also want to be impure and selfish. And isn't it true that most of the time, the impure, selfish side of you wins most of the time? 
Paul says, I can't do these things because the flesh and the spirit are fighting against each other so that you cannot do the things that you want to do. Have you ever had this moment where you're like, I don't know why I said that. It's not something that I would normally say. (laughs) I don't know why I did that, but he pulled in front of me and I lost my mind and I said and did things that I don't normally say and do. Have you, is it just me or just some, okay, my wife, she agrees. (laughs) You've done that, right? You're like, that wasn't me. I don't know who it was. Well, it was you. (laughs) It's just this battle raging inside of you and one of them won and the other one lost. So Paul says this exact same thing in another way, a more cleverer way almost, a more vulnerable way in Romans chapter 7. Let me read that to you. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, Paul says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, then I agree with the law that the law is good. I want to obey the law. I agree that the law is good. I'm trying to do the good that the law says I should be doing, but I no longer it is, I, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. <laughs> Again, he's described your life, hasn't he? Now, two things that you might experience when you hear Paul. The first is encouragement. Doesn't it encourage you? <laughs> it does. <laughs> It encourages you, doesn't it? If Paul is struggling like this, then I guess I could be encouraged. I mean, I love that Paul's being so vulnerable here. Do you ever hear that in the church? Like from your pastor or from other people? Man, I really am trying, but I'm not succeeding. <laughs> I suck at this. I keep falling and falling and falling. Do you ever experience that? Not most of the time. We pretend. We put on a mask and say, I'm good. You're good. Hey, we're good. You want to go eat? <laughs> Don't we? That's what you typically do in church. You just want to pretend everything's okay. You come to church to get away from your problems, not to you know, reveal them. Right now, I want you to huddle up in your circle and reveal all your problems, okay? I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Paul is being very, I like that, but you don't have time. Paul's being very vulnerable, and I like it. I feel like he gets it. You know, I like Paul. But the second thing it might give you is discouragement. <laughs> In one sense, it encourages because you're like, oh, Paul's just like me. But in the other sense, it might discourage you like, well, then when, what, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to be, am I always going to be like this? And if that's your question, what am I supposed to do? Can I just gently, lovingly tell you, you just missed the point. It's not about what you're supposed to do. In fact, it's your doing that gets you into trouble in the first place. That's what Paul's saying here. The, the good I want to do, I don't do. I end up doing the things that I hate doing. So it's not what you do, right? This isn't a religion. It's not about what you do. What's it about? What he done did, amen? Paul says in Galatians 5, our key text, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. See, Paul's not saying this desire inside of you is not keeping you from doing the things you want to do, which are bad things. It's keeping you from doing the things you want to do, which are actually the good things that you want. It's okay to want to be good, right? I know we've been kind of ragging on, don't, you don't need to try harder and do better and be gooder. But it's okay to want to be gooder. The problem is is that you can't, can you? That's what Paul's saying here. Look at this next verse. This is going to intrigue you. But if you are led by the Spirit, comma, you are not under the law. 
I need you to know that this is a key, pivotal verse in this text. This is going to help us unlock the meaning of what Paul's talking about here. We have to understand why Paul just flipped his metaphors. Did you see that he did that? He started off by saying, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the what? Flesh. And then he ends this section by saying, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the flesh? Why didn't he say flesh? Why didn't he say, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not being led by the flesh? He seemed to flip his metaphor, and, and what did he flip it with? The law. Again, the law, in Paul's mind, is a work of the flesh. And so Paul did not spend four and a half chapters beating up the law to now move on and say, but you do need to try harder, and you need to you know, kill your flesh and start listening to the Spirit. That's not essentially what he's saying. He's saying works of the law in your own works, you trying harder to do better, is under the law. Do you see what I'm saying? So if you walk by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Here's the ironic thing. In Christian living, you go to the bookstore, you go to the Christian living section, <laughs> which is most of the Christian bookstore. You're going to see books on how you can try harder and do better and be gooder. That's what you're going to get. You can do the Daniel diet plan even and lose a few pounds. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of Christian living options of here's how you can have your best life now. But the thing is, is that we've been told, we've, we've taught ourselves, we've been taught that the, that the exact opposite of what Paul says here is true. Paul says, if you walk by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But what we have told ourselves is, if you are walking in the Spirit, then you are obsessed with the law. Isn't that true? If you are a mature Christian, then you are obeying the law. You are, you are crossing your I's and dotting your T's. You're in the law. We've been taught that true Christian maturity is all about being gooder, trying harder, and stop sinning. And what we've done when we do that, as Paul's showing us here, is we've completely oversimplified the problem. We think that good Christian living means managing our sin, managing our behavior, and raise your hand if you can do that. See, many of you raise your hand. So you need to go back to the Christian living section in your bookstore and get more books. Well, let me unpack why this is true. Why we oversimplify the problem and why I think we could be helped if we learned how complex it really is. For the desires of the flesh, Paul says, are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. The first thing we need to understand is what that word desires mean. Your Bible might actually say lusts. Anyone got a Bible that says lusts? Anyone got a Bible? The Bible sometimes says lust, which is not a very good translation because we always, as Americans, think of something when we think the word lust. We always think of sexual immorality or lusting with your eyes. And although that is a work of the flesh, it isn't what Paul means when he says the lusts of our flesh or the desires of our flesh. Lust just means a longing for, a desire. I lust after you know, that car. It doesn't mean I'm having sexual thoughts about the car. It means I want that car, Right? The Greek word epithemia literally means an over-desire. Timothy Keller explains it well. He says, literally, epithemia means an over-desire, an inordinate desire, an all-controlling drive and longing. That's what a desire is. The over-desires of your flesh are raging against the desires of the spirit. Do you see that? He goes on. Keller does. He says, this is crucial because our problem is not so much desires for bad things, but our over-desires for good things. Did you catch that? 
So you have desires for good things. Maybe you want to be a good mother. Maybe you want to be a successful businessman. Maybe you want to be a good provider for your family. Maybe you want to look good to your peers. Those aren't bad. I wouldn't say they're bad, right? Those are good things. But your over-desire for those good things are what cause this external of, I don't want to say little sins, but the little sins that you think you're continuing to deal with. The real sin is this over-desire for good that creates the fleshly works of sin in your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, let me, let me unpack it. I'm going to. <laughs> Thanks for saying that, though. <laughs> Listen to what Paul says in chapter 7 again. He says, If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that the law is good. For I have the desire to do what is right, to do the law, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want. We think, what we've done is we've oversimplified the problem and we said, I've got a sin problem. I I look at pornography or I'm addicted to a certain chemical. And we think, if I can stop looking at porn, if I can stop doing that, um, what did I say, chemical, then I'm good. But what we've missed is that those sins are really rooted in my over-desire for something else. And that over-desire for something else, I'm not getting, and I think these things are going to help me get it. Does that make sense? Timothy Keller goes on and he says, every sin is rooted in the inordinate lust for something. You have an inordinate lust for something. Paul Paul says he does too. You have an inordinate lust for something, and that thing, when you are chasing after it or lusting after it, it brings sin because we're trusting in that thing rather than in Christ for our righteousness or our salvation. We sin because we're looking to something else to give us what only Jesus can give us. That's a lot more complicated than stop sinning. (laughs) What Paul's really saying here is to stop wanting these good things so much. So if I could picture it for you, we have this battle going inside of us between the flesh and the spirit. And the flesh produces acts, and those acts are really rooted in unbelief. If we were going to keep with the context of this entire letter, we've been talking about this for 11 weeks now, it might be better to not talk about a a, a battle in in your desires of your flesh and your spirit. It might actually be better to talk about a battle between unbelief and belief or a battle between works and faith. Remember Abraham, he didn't believe that God was going to give him what he promised him. And so he did works in his flesh to get what God said he was going to have, which was a son. And so he slept with Hagar, and that was sin. So sin is rooted in his unbelief. So the desires in our heart are rooted in unbelief rather than trust, faith, belief in Christ. I'll still unpack it because I know it's deep. Here's a few quotes for you. Martin Luther. He says, The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent, that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and therefore must take matters into our own hands. That's the sin under all your sin. Every sin that you're struggling with today is deeply rooted with another sin, and that sin is to believe the lie of the serpent that God doesn't have your back that God doesn't have your best interest at heart, that you have to get what you want because God's not going to give it to you. Remember Adam and Eve? They had a sin, and the sin was they ate the apple. Do you think Adam and Eve were lusting after that apple? I've never met a person who lusted after an apple. Ooh, i got to have me some of that apple. (laughs) That apple looks good. 
And I don't care what God says, I cannot control myself. That's not what they wanted. They didn't want the apple. The eating the apple was the sin. God said, don't eat the apple. And so when they ate the apple, that was a sin. But what was it that they wanted? What they wanted was all that the devil told them they weren't getting from God. The devil said, God's holding out on you. God's not giving you all the power you could have, all the wisdom you could have, all the control over this world that you could have. God's holding out on you. This apple is a metaphor. It represents all that God's not giving you. And if you want it, you've got to take it. And that's your over-desire. God's not going to provide for me. He hasn't yet. Abraham said, it's been 10 years, no baby. I'm going to reach out and take it myself. John Calvin was fond of saying this. He would say, Christians are in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief. He didn't say Christians are in perpetual conflict with their sin nature or their um, new man nature. He says they're in perpetual conflict with unbelief. It's like the centurion, I believe, help my unbelief. I just, I'm not quite sure if I really trust you on this. Raise your hand if you're, if you're at least picking up a little bit of what I'm throwing down. Okay, good. I'm just not sure, God, if I trust you at this moment. So, you know, I've got a bottle, and that makes me feel better, at least for now. Or I can go running as fast as I want, and that gives me some endorphins, and I feel better right now. And I might even pray while I run. But in the end, I'm running from God because I'm not trusting him eternally. Does that make sense? Shavigian. He says, temptation, listen to this, this is good. Temptation has more to do with belief than it does with behavior. That's a different spin on it, isn't it? Temptation, H.J., has more to do with belief than it does with behavior. See, what we've done is oversimplify it, and we try to control the behavior. But what we really need to be dealing with is the root of it, which is our belief, our trust, our faith. He goes on, every temptation to sin is at its root the temptation to disbelieve the gospel. Okay, so let me just back up for a minute, and let's just talk. Let's unpack this a little bit. What does this mean for you? Because it is a little different than what I think you've normally hear, which is stop sinning. This is a little bit different. This is a little more psychological. It's kind of heavy. You're going to have to get deep into some inner workings of your soul. What is your over-desire? You have one. Chances are you don't even have to think about it because you've been thinking about it all day. You have an over-desire, and you know what it is. For some of us, it's, you know, you worry constantly. The Bible says worrying is a sin. And so you're, you have that sin, but it's deep down inside. Why are you worrying? Because you need security? Because you want control? Maybe you have an addiction problem. Why do you have an addiction problem? That's a sin, yes, but deep down inside, what are you missing? What are you longing for? What are you running from? What are you hiding from? Do you see what I'm saying? We tend to deal with pornography, but that never works. It always comes back because it's always out there. Click away. What we really have to deal with is this inner psychology of what is it that you're not trusting God for? How is that over-desire rooted in your unbelief? That's the question you should ask yourself. For some of you, like I said, you don't even have to think about it. You think about it so much, you could list it right now. My over-desire, security. My over-desire, control. I don't want to be, I don't want any kind of control over me. My over-desire, success. My over-desire, sex. I mean, you've got it. You know it because you live and breathe it and eat it all day long, don't you? Now, to be honest with you, some of you, you might need to see counseling. <laughs> it might be deeply rooted, you know, daddy issues or something that's bringing out this fear that's causing you to not trust God and need to 
find some other answers, other savior in your life. Now, what we normally do, for those of you who are visiting, is we turn in at a table, and we have just a little community time, a little discussion time. And I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. If you don't want to talk, you don't have to talk. There's always someone at your table who will talk. But this time is really just to get to know each other and to make this kind of more applicational and real. Now, don't be scared. I'm not going to ask you to name your over-desire. Because <laughs> I don't think this would be the time or the place for that. But if you know it, then you've got half the battle there. And you can talk about it in a way that's discreet, I guess, for now. So here's the question. How will seeing your sin and temptation as an over-desire for good things and as unbelief in the gospel, how will that idea change the way you address that sin in your life? We've been talking about desires of the flesh, over-lustful desires of your heart, soul, flesh. But Paul, it contrasts that with the desires of the spirit. Did you see that? Think about it this way. Paul says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And if you think about it, that means the spirit, that's a capital S. I know all the letters are capital, but, but if you were reading it in your Bible, it would be a capital S. It means the Holy Spirit, not your spirit. You're not fighting with, with you know, your devil and your angel. You know, this is your flesh against the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. But do you notice that the Holy Spirit has lusts? Sounds kind of risque, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit lusts. It's oh, epithemia, same word. It's over-desires. The spirit has an over-desire too. Your flesh has an over-desire. It's a deeply psychological thing that you long for and you want and you need it and you think about it all the time and your whole life is bent towards that thing. And you run to that thing and if God isn't gonna give you that thing, then by golly, you're gonna get it yourself. That's your over-desire. But the Holy Spirit has one just like it. Huh, kind of interesting the way Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. Do you know what the Holy Spirit's desire is? Thank you, to glorify God. In fact, every time Jesus introduces us to the Holy Spirit, he tells us right here in John 16, here's one of them, famous one. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Every time Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit, he basically says that. The Holy Spirit, comforter, is going to come and when he comes, he's gonna lead you into truth and he's gonna point you to me, Jesus says. Here at Missio Day, we're passionate about the Trinity. It's part of our logo. It's part of the mission of God. God sent the Son, sent the Spirit. And this is the way it always looks in the Bible. God, the Father, is always doting upon his Son, Jesus. I don't know if you notice this in the Old Testament, but it's like God's constantly pulling out his wallet and saying, can't wait for you to meet him. He's coming. He's going to be a shoot, branch. Right? He's, going to be a, he's going to be a servant. You know, I can't wait for you to meet my, my boy. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, the second person of the Trinity, he's doing the same thing, but he's pointing to God. He's pointing to Dad. No, nope, it's all about my Father. I only do what my Father tells me to do. It's all, I'm here because my Father wants me to be here. If you've seen me, you've seen my Father. It's all about Dad. So they're just doting upon each other. And then the Spirit comes, and the Spirit says, it's all about Jesus. Jesus says, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving the Spirit with you so he can point you back to me in case you forget. And you might remember last time we met in chapter 5, verse 5, it says that when you get saved, you get the Spirit inside of you as a seal in order to give you the power, the ability to wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness. So the Spirit is inside of you saying, you're going to get it. You're gonna, just wait. Just don't be like Abraham and try to get it yourself. Just wait. It's coming. Righteousness is coming. Fruit is coming. Just wait. So the Holy Spirit's over-desire is Jesus. 
So now unpack this verse. You have an over-desire in your spirit that longs for this, 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 this. And the Holy Spirit's longing is, Jesus, yeah, but I want this. Jesus, <laughs> but I want over. You need more of Jesus. And how many of you think that sounds cheesy and cliche? Right. doesn't solve my problems. It's because you've not listened to the Holy Spirit. He's pointing you back to Jesus. Remember I said it's not a religion? It's a relationship. You've got to come into a relationship with Jesus. Stop trying to manage your sin so that you can get what you want. Nope, it's all about Jesus. I like what he says here. He says, Jesus says, the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. You know what he's talking about, gospel. Take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit's role is to preach the gospel to you. Preach the gospel to you every single day. See, we need more gospel. Jesus is going to preach the gospel to you through the Holy Spirit. So the, the antidote to the sinfulness in your life, to the over-desires in your life, is not managing that or managing this sin. It is actually a fresh, renewed preaching of the gospel to yourself from the Holy Spirit. See, the over-desires, I said, is unbelief. So how do, you, how do you solve unbelief? You need to be reminded of what you believe. You need to be reminded of the gospel. Jerry Bridges, he's, he writes a lot about this concept of preaching the gospel to yourself in a book called The Disciplines of Grace. This is kind of a, listen, about a half a page of quote. I'm going to read it to you. I hope it might help you. It helps me. About preaching the gospel to yourself. The Spirit is in you preaching the gospel. You need to remind yourself every day, what do I believe? Am I after this thing, my over-desire, or do I believe the gospel? So he says this. To preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate, again, by faith, the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God that he's your substitute, your propitiation, and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed towards you. To preach the gospel to yourself means that you take at face value the precious words of Romans 4, which says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. It means that you believe on the testimony of God that says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Someone give me a what, what? It means that you believe that Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It means that you believe he forgave you of all your sins. And now that presents you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation, Colossians chapter 1. If you were to turn to the Old Testament, to preach the gospel to yourself means that you appropriate by faith the words of Isaiah 53, which says we are all like sheep. We cannot do what we want. We've gone astray. And each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It means that you dwell upon the promise that God has removed your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west. And he has blotted out your transgressions and remembers your sin no more. But it also means that you realize that all of these wonderful promises of forgiveness are based on the atoning death of Christ and not on yourself. It's not about what you do or need to do or need to stop doing. It's about what he done did, amen? That is preaching the gospel to yourself. So in, in, in kind of a summary, I would say like this. Freedom, it's all about freedom. 
But we have acts of the flesh that move us towards what we want, and that's unbelief. And, and our over-desires are these things that we want, and it's, a, it's an example of unbelief. But the Spirit gives us fruit, which we'll talk about next week, and gives us more belief. You see, I think that what we do in the church today is we talk about it in a way, well, we, I think that what we imply is wrong. What we tend to say is, you become a Christian, and you're like a baby, and you're crawling, and you've got the gospel. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But you really need to get on past that. You really need to mature and get, kind of get your sea legs, you know, your Christian legs, if you will. And then you get your Christian legs, and you're able to walk on your own. And maybe now you're quoting Ephesians, you know. But then you get to run, and now you're quoting Revelations to everybody, right? And so that's what we tend to think and what we, meet, what we imply by that. Although that illustration can be true. We do mature. Paul says you graduate from milk to meat. But what we always seem to think about when we say meat is you need to be better, and you need not be struggling with this anymore, and you need to be moving forward. And we, we, what we imply by that is the more mature you get, the less you need Jesus. Do you catch that? Start off in a crawl, oh, I need you, oh, I need you every hour, I need you. You're like, you know what, I'm pretty good at this now. <laughs> I've got this. And we imply Christian maturity means needing Jesus less and less. Getting stronger, getting better, getting faster, getting purer, and therefore needing Jesus less. I tend to think of it like, like teenagers. <laughs> An arrogant young teenage Christian will read the Bible and say, I got this. Job, I did this when I was 21. Job made a covenant with his eyes never to lust at a woman again. I can do that. And I did it five times a day. I made that covenant. <laughs> that young, arrogant teenage Christian stands, you know, at the altar with his bride-to-be, and the pastor says, till death do you part, will you love your wife like Christ loves the church? And you're like, I got this, baby. <laughs> but, you know, the seasoned veteran, salt and pepper, gray hair, balding, Christian. He doesn't say, I got that, does he? He's learned from the school of hard knocks that I don't got this. What? Love my wife like Christ loves the church? I'm going to need you every hour for that, Lord Jesus. I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. So we don't walk and get better and get more mature and need Jesus less. The truth of it is we need Jesus so let me give you the 60-second version of everything I've said. How's that? If you're taking notes, maybe this will be you know, the, thing, the only thing you've heard. All Christians have inside of them a battle between two forces. One force is the over-desires of our flesh. The other is the desire of the Spirit. Our flesh desires good things and bad things, but we cannot accomplish what we want because our flesh wrestles against the desires of the Spirit. And the desire of the Spirit is always to point us to Jesus. And Paul exhorts us, therefore, to walk in the Spirit Pointing to Jesus and not the law. Let, let me give you a 10-second version for those of you who have a smaller attention span. Thank you. Here's my 10-second version. I must decrease. He must increase. John 3.30. I must decrease and he must increase. You see, that's, I think, the ticket. And, and it's so paradoxical, isn't it? 
We tend to think as Christians that what we need to do is try harder and do better and and increase in our strength and increase in our uh, validity that we are Christians. Look at me. I don't do those things anymore. I once was lost, but now I'm I'm so found. (laughs) I once was blind, but now I I see it all. And I can quote Revelation to you. But what we really need is to be like that old gray-haired man that says, less of me and more of he. I need to die to myself. I need to stop trying. I need to just submit and let him take the wheel. To quote a country singer. (laughs) I can't believe I just did that. I just quoted a country song. (laughs) Forgive me, Father. I do not do the things I want to do. I only do the things I hate. Part of our problem of this moving into maturity and away from Jesus is our misbelief and even, I think, our misteachings that the gospel is the ABCs of the Christian faith. We believe that the gospel is that Jesus loves me, this I know, and then we need to graduate and eat some steak. But it's not the ABCs. It's the A to Zs. It's everything. The gospel is everything. It is what is Jesus. When Jesus says he takes what is mine, what is his? The finished work on the cross, that's his work. Read any systematic theological book, you'll see. What is Jesus' work? It is the cross. Jesus takes what is his, and he declares it to you. Never forget what I did for you. You don't need to try harder. Just become less and let me become more. Stop desiring this. Start desiring me. This is why I said Christianity is not a religion of things that you need to do. It's a relationship. And so instead of teaching you, stop that, try harder, what I should be teaching you is, do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you in a relationship with Jesus? Because rules and works aren't going to change you. It might make you look like you've changed. It will. But it'll come back. Trust me. I've been around long enough to know it always comes back bites you on a random Thursday. But what will change you is a relationship with Jesus. We never graduate past the gospel. Never. Never. We do communion each and every week. And I think that one of the reasons why we do communion is to remind us of that 10-second scenario. I must decrease and he must increase. In fact, communion, when you think about it, is visual. It's physical. You take it in and you experience it in so many different levels. And part of the reason why we do it is because we get to hold in our hands the gospel. We get to taste in our mouths the gospel. And it's as if we're saying, Jesus is saying, don't forget the gospel. Every week, I think we need that, don't you? Every week, we need to take this thing into our hand and say to God, let this remind me of what you've done. Because I do forget. In fact, that's the whole point. I keep forgetting, and I try to do it myself. Father in heaven, we, we are really just scratching the surface. We really are. We don't understand all of this, I don't believe. We, we know that you love us so much that you sent your son to die for us and to cover our sins and to give us all of these promises, and yet still we have this desire inside of us, and I truly believe, at least in my own life, that it is rooted in my disbelief, my unbelief, that you really do have my best interests at heart. But you've proven that you do. You've proven over and over again that you answer prayers. You've proven over and over again that you love us so much that you would send your son to die. So I pray, Lord, that every single one of us in this room, we have an epithemia. 
We have an over-desire, an over-longing that we are seeking it as our Savior. We are seeking it as the thing that's going to give us meaning. I pray, Lord, that you will, this week, as we drive in our cars, as we go to work, as we out and about, that we would, that you would stir that spirit inside of us to reveal it to our hearts that, you know what your over-desire really is? Maybe we, maybe we come to grips with it. May we confess it and hand it over to you. And might your Holy Spirit, again, direct us to Christ, to point us to Christ. Might we find a relationship and peace there. As we take this bread and as we drink of this cup, Lord, let us be reminded that we need you every hour. Amen.